Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 23 tonight, Luke chapter 23. Let me say while you turn there that I'm more excited about Lord Jesus than I am about UT football. Amen. Amen. And uh, because the Lord has never let me down. Well, they just forgot what it used to be like. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, the Lord's never let me down. The Lord's never quit at halftime. Amen. The Lord's never promised more than he could deliver. And the Lord's never lost to Vanderbilt. Amen. So <laughs> I've got a lot more confidence in the Lord. Amen. Luke chapter number 23, I'd like to begin reading at verse 33, some of the most familiar scripture in all the word of God. You'll know it the moment we begin reading it. Luke chapter 23, verse 33, the Bible says, and when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Let me pause there and say, when a man will say, I'm receiving the due reward of my deeds, he's not far away from getting saved. Amen. Uh, but it's going to take that. A person has to, has to admit they're guilty before they can be pardoned. A person can't be pardoned if they won't admit they're guilty in the first place. And he admits that he's guilty. We receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God that it's inspired and inerrant, preserved, infallible. Lord, help us just to approach it with the reverence that it deserves tonight. Help us to come as a needy people that we might receive from your hand the spiritual strength and food and nourishment that we so desperately need. And Lord, I pray that we would put up no fences in our heart and in our life. But Lord, that we would just allow the Holy Spirit free range to move and to work in our lives, in our midst, to address and to deal with any matter within us. And may we be sincere and honest and obedient unto you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In these short verses that we have read tonight, we have read about the death of the Son of God. This was a death that was unlike any other death that was experienced before then or even to this moment in human history. When I think about this death, there's three things that strike my mind about it. Number one, it was a momentous death. 
In other words, this moment in history is the very hinge upon which all of humanity swings. You're either on one side of this reality or on the other side of this reality. And how God views you and how God treats you and what God will do with you is strictly determined by what you believe about this moment and what you have done in your life in light of the truth of this moment. This was the singularly most important moment in all of human history. For God Himself died at the hands of created man. If you don't know about this moment in history, then you cannot be saved. And knowing about this moment in history and knowing about the resurrection that takes place three days later is literally the key to heaven. It is the key to hope. It is the key to forgiveness. It is the key to life. It is a momentous death. There's never been a more important death than this death that took place right here. I just got through a few moments ago coming away from a funeral service. And uh, it was full of family and grieving loved ones and friends. And for that family right now, that death is one of the most important moments in their life. But we tried in the funeral service to remind them that though they are having to face death, they do not have to face death alone because Christ Himself has faced death. And they, through his death on the cross of Calvary, can experience victory over this foe that we know of as death. And all this is possible because of this death that takes place in this passage. It was a momentous death. Let me say, number two, it was a miraculous death. One of my favorite things to study in all of uh, the New Testament is the miracles that surrounded the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary. There are five miracles that take place, and they are unique and proprietary in uh, in the midst of the whole catalog of miracles that our Lord performed, because they are not merely uh, the uh, bending or subjugating of natural realities to the will of God, but rather almost like you took a stone and cast it into a pond, and ripples would then proceed out from it. All of these miracles are echoes of spiritual realities that were accomplished through the death of Christ on Calvary. For instance, you say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, there was a veil that rent here, but there was a veil that rent down here because there was a veil that rent up there. The Bible describes how the sun was darkened and uh, a lot of uh, unbelieving commentators. Isn't that funny that anybody would listen to an unbelieving commentator? But a lot of unbelieving commentators would suggest that this was merely a solar eclipse, but they don't know their science, nor do they know their history. Because the uh, history tells us very clearly, and it is confirmed on the pages of God's infallible word, that the Jews use what's called a lunar calendar. And our Lord being crucified in conjunction with the Passover, which took place on the 14th day of the month, would have meant that the moon would have been in its full at this time. Meaning literally at the polar opposite end of the earth from where the sun is. It would be literally impossible for an eclipse to take place at this moment. It was not simply some celestial event transpiring, but it was a spiritual ramification of a heavenly reality that God, having made His Son sin for humanity, had turned His back and forsaken the Son and turned away from the Son from Jesus Christ. 
We could on and on, we could look throughout these various miracles, the rocks rent because creation itself was crying out at the death of its creator. We could talk about the uh, the Old Testament saints that raised up from the dead as a sort of first fruits along with Jesus Christ at the moment of His resurrection as well. All these miracles transpired. But it is not merely the miracles that accompany the death that interests me tonight, but rather it's the miracle of the death itself. You understand that life died on the cross of Calvary. You understand that God died on the cross of Calvary. You understand that the one entity outside of the jurisdiction of death itself subjugated himself, submitted himself unto death, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was a miracle for God to die. There's no greater miracle speaking of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the very fact that being made sin, He died our death for us on the cross. It was a momentous death. It was a miraculous death. But there's a thought that occurs to me tonight. I want to preach on this thought. It was also a model death. So what do you mean, preacher? What I mean is when we look at these pages of Scripture, when we look at the details surrounding the death of Jesus Christ, we find in it a pattern for you and I in the manner in which we are to die. You might say, well, preacher, I, I hope, and, and I'm this way. I mean, I expect to be, I expect to be shot and killed by some disgruntled Baptist, really, to be honest. I don't expect to see it coming, amen. I want to die with my boots on, but it's not a physical death that I speak of. The Bible makes clear to us that there is in the life of the believer a spiritual death that is to be exercised day by day of volitional choice in regards to the governance of our life and the pursuit of our daily activity. Listen how Paul describes it in Romans chapter number 8. He says this, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the physical skin on our body, but he's talking about the natural man or operating in our natural energy by our own intuition and with our desires as our priority. We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify. What does it mean to mortify? It means to kill something. I was driving down the road the other day. I mortified a squirrel. Amen. And uh, I did. You know, I'm done moving out of the way for these rodents. I mean, I'm just going to say... I'm creating God's image. I am a higher life form than them. They do not have a soul. I'm not saying I'm out looking for them, but if they're going to run up under my tire, I'm not sure if you tried to run out of my tire, I'd get out of the way. Amen? But certainly not some rat with a fuzzy tail. And uh, But they must have spread the word because I was on the way to church this morning. I come down the road and there's a squirrel in the middle of the road. And he he's turned and squared up against me and ran straight at me. Amen? That's how I hope I go, amen? And it probably will be. Mortify, to kill something. Paul says, if ye mortify the deeds of the body, is he saying we don't do anything? No. What he's saying is that we don't operate in our natural energy according to our natural lust or with our natural priorities. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
It was this truth that caused Paul to declare in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Paul said, every day I wake up and I make a deliberate, conscious decision to not live for Paul, but to live for Jesus Christ. I mortify the deeds of the body. I determine that the old man, that the flesh does not run and govern me, and I choose to live for Jesus Christ. He would describe the mechanics of this in Colossians chapter 3. He would say in verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created. Paul tells us we are to daily practice this exercise, this this mind frame, this, this disposition of existence, that we are to mortify the old man the flesh, the body, the deeds thereof, that we are, in my case, to put Toby in a coffin and to walk in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, when we approach Calvary with that perspective, there's seven, don't get nervous, seven instructive truths that I want you to consider when we look at what took place on Calvary. And here's what I want to preach on tonight. I want to preach on dying like the Master. How do we take the truths of how Christ died and import them into our daily life so that we die to self the very same way that He died for ourselves. I want you to notice them with me tonight. Look at verse number 33 of our text. The Bible says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Let me say number one tonight, I learned something about dying to self when I look at Jesus' situation. The Bible tells us that He is crucified, and you've often seen this, no doubt at Easter time, you'll see various pictures and, and, and portraits that'll show three crosses on a hill, and always they'll show the middle cross to be higher than the rest, denoting that to be the cross of Jesus Christ. That cross is often uh, denoted that way to represent some prominence or some, uh, you know, sort of, uh, of preeminence that we seek to give the place of Jesus Christ. And yet, the Bible tells us that though this picture is certainly historical in the sense of the placement of Jesus on the middle cross, that it was not for the same warm, fuzzy feelings and reasons that we often portray it that way. In fact, history would tell us that often if they were crucifying a group of people, that they would put the most severe criminal, the most wicked transgressor on the center cross, that the eye might be drawn directly to them and that they more than anyone else might bear the shame of the punishment of their crime. They could have put Jesus on the right, they could have put Him on the left, but putting Him in the center was declaring Him to be the gravest sinner being crucified on that day. Say, preacher, what does that teach me about my daily life? Well, it tells me this. That was the last place that to your mind and mine he should have been. 
It was the last place he deserved to be. It certainly was the last place that in the, in the, how do I say this? In the desire of his own heart, he would want to be. And yet it's the very place that he chose to be. What does that suggest to you? Well, Mark gives us a little more insight as to why this was done, not just by the Romans in seeking to cast shame upon him, but of his own choice and of his own willingness. Why did Jesus occupy this center cross? Well, Mark 15, 27 says this, And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is a quote from from Isaiah chapter number 53. And you might say, well, preacher, why would Jesus allow them to do that? Why would he allow them to put him on the center cross? Why would he allow himself to be crucified with common criminals, one on one side, the other on the other? I mean, why would he allow himself to be associated with people so vile and so wicked and so evil as that? Why would he be in such a shameful and such an unpleasurable situation? The Bible tells us it was because it was prophesied according to the word of God. In other words, dying to self means this. It means being in the place God wants me to be, even if it's not the place I would want to be. We always imagine that being in the will of God is fun. But oftentimes that is not the case. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a peace that passeth all understanding. There's a joy unspeakable, full of glory. But there's going to be plenty of times... When for you to follow the will of God, you're not going to be operating according to intuition. You're not going to be operating according to convenience and ease and pleasure and leisure. But you're going to have to deliberately and willfully say, though this is not what I want to do, I know it to be the will of God, and I'm willing to put to death self and its desires and its ambitions and say, God, if this is what you want for me, then this is where I'll be. The Bible describes the death of Jesus on the cross in Hebrews chapter number 12 and says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Don't think for one moment that there was anything about Calvary that Jesus enjoyed. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Why did he do that? Well, it was for the joy that was set before him, meaning on the other side of an empty tomb with the blood washed redeemed and their redemption being procured and being secured by his resurrection. But in that moment, there was nothing about it that was pleasurable or palatable to him. He's a holy God. He's being made sin. His greatest desire in his earthly ministry was close, intimate fellowship with his father and he's being severed from him. He wanted to impart and to express life to all those that followed him. And now he is dying. He is deserving of all glory and all praise. And now he is being shamed and he is being cursed. Everything about Calvary is disconsonant with the appetites and desires of the Lord Jesus. And yet he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem and went nonetheless. Why did he do that? He was dying to self. He was doing the will of God. He was pursuing the Father's purpose for his life. If you and I are going to do the will of God, and if we're going to die to self, then we're going to have to be willing to be in the place of God's choosing. I'd say his situation shows me something about how I can die to self. But look at verse 34. The Bible says this, then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. I would say his supplication teaches me something about dying to self. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have some flowerly, flower, flower, I've been hanging around Ken. 
I don't have some flowery theological explanation. I just want to point out to you, as really we spoke about this morning, how hard that prayer must have been to pray. I mean, I understand that our experience of life, inasmuch as we're made in the image of God, must always be adjusted to allow an account for our fallen nature. But you understand that uh, vengeance is a divine quality. You understand that jealousy is a divine characteristic. Now, your vengeance and my vengeance is tainted by our depraved nature. Your vengeance and my vengeance is is tainted by self-interest and self-interested motives. Your jealousy, my jealousy is is in some way skewed by our fallen nature. I'm not meaning to suggest that petty jealousy or bitterness or anger were ever a part of the character or attitude of the Lord Jesus. I'm just merely pointing out the fact that Him, knowing what they had done, knowing what they were doing, knowing what they were about to do, how difficult must it have been to have forgiven those that had nailed him to that cross. It's interesting in the context of this passage what they immediately do. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the Bible says this, they parted his raiments and cast lots. You know, and I, I trust you've heard this before, that that raiment, that coat that he had was a picture and a testimony of his sinless righteousness. It was unusual and unique in that the Bible says that it was woven from the top throughout. And that's what they cast lots for. The rest of it, they parted out like scraps. And then the most precious possession he had, they treated it as a trivial thing. That coat being a picture of his righteousness. There's a very powerful truth here regarding how often lost people, and I don't just mean lost people down at the bars, I don't just mean lost people down at the dance clubs, but I mean lost people sitting in the house of God on a Sunday evening will oftentimes play trivial with the precious things of God. Let me say here, if you're here tonight and you're lost, I trust probably everybody in this room has heard the gospel. You know how to be saved. You've been presented the gospel before. And understand that to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ is to take that precious coat representative of his righteousness and to gamble over it and to gamble with it. As you could hear in a few moments, take your last breath and have lost that wager and enter into a hopeless eternity. And it's those people that he prays for. And he says, Father, forgive them. In other words, part of dying to self is learning to forgive even when it's hard. Learning to forgive when we don't feel like it. Learning to forgive when people are just going to continue to hurt. That's what the Bible says. He says, Father, forgive them. And they turned around and gambled over his clothes. I would say that part of dying to self and maybe even the the chief and supreme exercise or expression of dying to self is in the matter of forgiving those that are unworthy of our forgiveness. These people were unworthy of his forgiveness. But by the way, You and I were unworthy of His forgiveness. I don't subscribe to this Calvinistic heresy that He only died for those that would accept Him. Mainly because I'm a Bible believer. My Bible won't let me believe that. Because my Bible tells me He tasted death for every man. My Bible tells me He's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Because I'm a Bible believer, I can't believe that he only died for just those that would accept him. Nor do I believe he only prayed for forgiveness for those that would accept him. I believe his heart's desire 
was that all those... Would, and I'm not a universalist. I, I know, I understand broad's the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be that go therein. But there's not a single one of them that goes there because God wouldn't forgive them. He would forgive any and all of them. If I'm going to die to self, it will not only involve, but I'm going to have to learn how to forgive those that are hard to forgive. I think his situation, I think his supplication, but then I want you to notice... Not something he did. I want you to notice something he didn't do in the next few verses. Verse 35 says this, The people stood beholding. Now, who are the people? Well, you know, some of his followers, some of his disciples. He speaks to John there from the cross in John's gospel and, and commissions him with the care earthly care of his mother, the women that had ministered unto him. No doubt multitudes of people that had at one time sang his praises. No doubt some of those that had thrown the palm leaves down and cried out Hosanna to the highest and sang praise to the Son of David. What did they do? Did they rush the cross? Did they rush the soldiers? Did they take him down? No. No, they stood beholding. The rulers also with them derided him. You say, well, what does it mean to deride? Well, it tells us this is what they said. He saved others, let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. Not just the rulers, but the soldiers also. You know that crowd he just prayed for. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Verse 39 says one of the male factors. I mean, even the criminals, even the thieves getting in on this. One of the male factors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. You know, when I read this passage of Scripture and I'm, I'm trying to die like the Savior day by day, I learn not only from His situation and His supplication, but I learn from His silence. Because the one voice you won't hear in those verses is His. He could have. And understand that His words are more powerful than their words. His words are more powerful than your words. We can only hope to set a record straight he can literally bend time to his will through his word. He, he could have commanded legions of angels at his word. He could have spoken a word and put them on the cross and him on a throne. He could have done anything he chose. But because it wasn't the will of God, he suffered in silence. Peter will go on to tell us how that he left an example to us of suffering in silence. And I will tell you, I have trouble sometimes with this thing of silence. It's too easy to fly back. It's too easy to defend yourself. It's too easy to set them straight. Oh, it's funny. All the setting straight we do in this world ain't got no more straight. It's only got more crooked. And the Lord instead, here's what he did. Here's how Isaiah described it. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He said, preacher, they're oppressing us. I know he was oppressed. Preacher, they're afflicting us. Yeah, I know he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Peter would go on to tell us that instead of answering back, he committed himself unto the Father as unto a faithful creator. He said, Lord, I don't, I don't have to defend me. You'll defend me. I don't, I don't have to take my part, take my portion. One of the great truths that Abraham learned in the Old Testament is when he said, the Lord is my reward. My exceeding, he's my shield and my exceeding great reward. Abraham, he's living in a hostile land. Abraham's living beset about by enemies. 
Abraham's living in a place where he's left his inheritance, he's left his portion, he's left his part, and he's gone to a strange land. And what he learned is, it's not just what God gives that's the treasure, it's who God is that's the treasure. And that by having the Lord, he had everything he could ever hope to need. And so Abraham learned to suffer in silence, just like Christ suffered in silence. I don't like it, my flesh don't like it, but you see, that's the point. That's the rascal we're trying to deal with tonight. Say, preacher, I don't like that. I know you don't like that. You ain't supposed to like that. <laughs> I'd be worried if you did like that. So instead, you say, my flesh don't like that. I know, but the flesh is just going to have to be quiet if we're going to die to self. I think his silence, there's another passage, and it's contained even in our text, but Mark gives us a little clarity. So let me read a verse to you out of Mark 15:23. The Bible says this, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Now, there's two occasions on the cross on which they offer him wine or vinegar. And there's no discrepancy between the two. The wine that would often be offered to prisoners would be of the lowest and most sour variety. And so oftentimes it is spoken of in Scripture as synonymous with vinegar. The wine itself may or may not have been alcoholic. I don't think the wine that was later offered to him was. But rather the thing that would have a deafening or dulling effect on the senses was not the wine itself in being alcoholic, but the Bible says it was mingled with myrrh. Myrrh was used often as an embalming uh, liquid and embalming fluid in the process uh, of the preparation of dead bodies. And they try to give him this myrrh because it has a dulling effect on his senses. It was something they would often give dying men so that they would not feel the pain of their death as deeply or as sharply. The Bible tells us this later on, by the way, they give him vinegar. It's not alcoholic wine. He wouldn't have drank it if it had been. But they give him vinegar and he does receive it later on because it is not laced with myrrh. It is not laced with a a medicinal drug that would dull his senses. It tells me this. He wanted to meet the plight of Calvary with full cognitive awareness. He didn't want anything dulling his experience of what God was putting him through. And I would say this, I learned something from his soberness. He doesn't want a fuzzy picture. He doesn't want a cloudy experience. He wants to be sober. He wants to be vigilant. He wants to be aware. He wants to dwell in truth. And he wants to dwell in reality. Even if it would be easier to drink the myrrh and accept the lie... He would choose truth above relief. I will tell you, if we're going to die to self, we're going to have to choose truth above relief. I'll tell you why a lot of people never get serious about the Lord, because it hurts when they start getting honest. When they start being truthful about the measure of their commitment to Christ, about the reality of their walk with Him or lack thereof, about the deadness of their prayer life, about the, the, the disrepair and neglect of their Bible study time, it hurts. It smites the heart. It's uncomfortable. And so oftentimes they'll go to some snake oil salesman in a suit and tie that will peddle them a little wine mixed with myrrh and tell them that they're really not so bad and really everything's fine and they're really just keeping pace with the rest of society. You know, that's the problem. That's the problem is our measure and standard of Christianity is to keep pace with society. We got through taking this uh, little trip, and and when I'm when I'm driving down the road, if I'm on a vacation, I'm that person that does the speed limit. 
I'm not that in Knoxville, mind you. But when I'm on the road, I'm that person that does the speed limit or, or a few miles over. But, but the point is, I, I don't like to just drive wide open. You know why? Because I don't like to have to look in my rearview mirror all the time. And that way, if I pass a cop, I ain't worried about it. Amen. He ain't going to pull me over and find the drugs. I mean, I'm good, you know. And uh, so I, I'll try to drive the speed limit. And I'll tell you something. There's places in this country you'll get run slap over driving speed limit. And some of those places that we get driving in, I mean, there's places where the speed limit is 80. Amen. I mean, that's that you're, you're eight miles shy of kicking in your flux capacitor and winding up in the 1950s. You understand? That's fast. And. But, you know, all those people that's speeding down the highway, you know what they're doing? They're keeping pace with traffic. They're breaking the law, do it. They're risking their life doing it. But everybody else is doing it. So they're just keeping pace with what everybody else is doing. You know what's so broken about our Christianity? Our only ambition is to keep pace with the rest of Christianity. And you know what happens? And this is one of the things when, I, when I'm driving down the road, you'll have these people who come up behind you. They're usually from Ohio. I don't know why that is. But, but they're coming from behind you and they start pushing you, you know. And I mean, they're just they push you, and then they'll start with them lights. You know, they're proud of them high beams because they'll just flash them at you, you know. And if you're not careful, you'll let them push you to go faster. And pretty soon, because this is the way the police work, it won't be them gets pulled over. It'll be you that gets pulled over. You let them push you and push you and push. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. Part of what's broken about Christianity today is we're all just simply concerned with keeping pace with whatever cultural Christianity is doing in society. And so it is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And oftentimes in our spiritual walk, the reason we won't get serious about the Lord is because all that we need is to be told that we're keeping pace with everyone else and that satisfies us and that pleases us. We just need some preacher to get up on Facebook, to get up on YouTube, to get up on the television and to give us a little wine mingled with myrrh that can put us to sleep. But if we're going to die to self, we're going to have to be painfully sober about who and what we are. Man, his soberness. His soberness. And then listen to what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 27. This again is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. But I like the way Matthew records it in Matthew 27, 46. It says this in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When I look at the way he died, and I'm learning about dying to self. I, I'm impressed by his sacrifice. This is interesting, this question that the Lord asks. Of course, it is a prophetic question. It's contained in Psalms chapter number 22 and, and echoed here. Why hast thou forsaken me? You understand that an omniscient God only asks rhetorical questions. He knows the answer to everything, so he can't ask questions that aren't rhetorical in nature. And the asking of this question was deeply rhetorical. What's the purpose of a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is not asked in the pursuit of knowledge, but rather it's asked so that either the person to whom it is being asked or the people that are within hearing might stop and weigh and consider the answer for themselves. Now, he's asking this towards his father. God is asking God a question. That only leaves you and me as the person it's meant for. And the answer is simple. Why? Well, there's a reason it's only meant for you and me, because the answer is you and me. Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, for you and for me. 
put in a more theological sense, God forsook him because he became our sin for us. And he paid our sin for us. I would say this, that in this act, he showed the ugliness, the destructiveness, and the tragedy of sin. He showed sin for what it is when he died on Calvary. And it tells me that if I'm going to die to self, I'm going to have to be willing to see sin for what it is. I'm going to have to quit dressing it up. I'm going to have to quit making excuses for it. I'm going to have to see it as the most destructive, vile, poisonous, ugly, corrosive thing that could be present in my life. You look at Old Testament saints and one of the reasons God used Elijah. Elijah was not a perfect man. But one of the reasons God used Elijah is because Elijah hated sin almost as much as God did. He was offended and scandalized by the notion of sin. So much so that the pervasive and persistent sin in Israel's national life almost drove him to suicide because he was in such despair that they were living in unrepentant idolatry and that his ministry had not had the effect that he had hoped. I'm not trying to glorify or, or lionize his despair, but just merely saying uh, people that don't care about sin don't get tore up when society is sinful. Elijah was disturbed because society was sinful. David was a man whose life is full of of mistakes and failures, but one of the reasons he was a man after God's own heart is because through the pain and destructiveness of his own sin, David grew to hate sin the way God hates sin. Read Psalms 51 and you'll see. He hated sin in the life of others and he hated sin in his own life. And if I'm going to die to self, I'm going to have to learn to hate sin the way that God hates sin. Isaiah chapter 53 again echoes this passage and tells us just exactly what Christ experienced. It says he is despised, verse 3, and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Say, preacher, what was going on there on Calvary? Why did the sun turn dark? Why did the rocks rend? Why did the veil rend? Why did the earth shake? Why did he cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah says it's because the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Showing the ugliness of sin. And if I'm going to die to self, I'm going to have to see sin as an ugly thing. Not only his sacrifice, but look back in our text at verse 42 and 43. You're familiar with this. Two thieves on the cross. One of them is casting insults into Christ's teeth. And the other one begins to rebuke him. I would love to have seen that. Amen. I like that kind of... I mean, I would love to have seen him do that. And he says, don't you know we're in the same condemnation? And he turns and he looks at Jesus, verse 42, and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I'm going to tell you what my answer would have been if I had been Jesus in verse 43. Uh, I'm busy here. That would have been my answer. My answer would have been, can't you let me die in peace? My answer would have been, worry about your own self. I'm tending to my own death here. My answer would have been, why are you bothering me? At this moment, but that wasn't, thank God, that wasn't Jesus' answer. 
Because verse 43 tells us that Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. His selflessness teaches me something about dying to self. Now that seems obvious. Maybe borderlining redundant, elementary and reductionist, but but it does that even while he was dying, he was ministering. I don't just mean in a broad meta sense that through his death, but I mean in that moment, he would have been that person handing out tracts even at the gas station. He would have been that person holding up the line at the funeral home witnessing to one of the family members. He would have been that person that you's behind Christian cussing at because he's trying to give the gospel to the person at the checkout counter and you're just trying to get out of there with your beef jerky. Amen? At every moment, at every occasion, he is speaking, he is saving that which was lost. At every moment, at every occasion, he is ministering unto. At every moment, at every occasion, even in his death. Even in his death, he won more people to the Lord than most Christians ever will in their whole life. When he won this one man. He is selfless. Even his death is not about him. Even his death is not focused on Him. Even in the most dire of situations, and I think we all have a tendency when we go through trial and affliction to want to sort of circle the wagons of our priorities. The world has a term for it today. It's real popular. It's called self-care. You'll hear that word a lot today. Self-care. Really what's meant by self-care is selfish most of the time. What's really meant is I don't have responsibilities. My responsibility is just to please me, to pamper self. But when we find the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary, He's not interested in self-care. He's interested in a sinner that's on His way to hell. And it tells me, of course, that I should be a soul winner. But it also gives me a deeper truth that if my life is going to be about Christ, it can't be about me. And if I'm going to die to self, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve... Putting self aside. I think it's selfish, uh, selflessness. Look with me at verse 46. The Bible says this, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. This is a fascinating verse. Because Jesus did not die for the same reasons that you or I die. I said this morning that when you or I, the reason we die is because death overcomes us. That's the natural course. And sometimes it can happen through some sudden trauma in a person's life. Sometimes it can happen through some chronic disease in a person's life. Sometimes any number of other conditions can lead to or contribute to that. But for every person, it is the same reality that when they die, death has overcome. It has outpaced life. One of the things that's interesting, and when you pastor, you see this, you experience it. In fact, I had a grandmother that was, or a great-grandmother that was this way, that, that she would get sick, and they would call the family in. And the family would come in and, and, and would, would dote on her and love on her. And Granny, how you feeling and how you doing and everything? And then all of a sudden, she'd start getting better, you know? Well, what happened? Well, life was waning and death was winning But then when all of her family got around, she had a reason to live. And so she would perk up and she would start to do a little better. And then they would go home. And then a few days later, they'd get a call. Granny's right at the edge. We need to come. You need to gather in. And they'd come in. And this happened two, three times. Finally, they called one day and 
And they said, hey, I think Granny's doing doing poorly. I think she's getting ready to die. And they said, well, we'll come down. They said, no, don't. If you do, she's just going to live longer. Amen. (laughs) Stay away so she can die. Amen. Death overcomes life. But that's not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die because death overcame life. Jesus died because life willingly chose to place itself under the dominion of death. We see this expressed in the very language here. It doesn't say he finally gave out. It doesn't say even that he finally gave up. All it says is that he cried with a loud voice. And by the way, we understand from John's gospel what that is. He cried to Talistai, it is finished. That's why he died, because it was finished. He was done. He didn't die because his body was done. He died because his work was done. And then he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That doesn't sound like something that a person... I mean, I I couldn't say that five times fast, and I don't guess I'm dying. But he says it in this moment. doesn't sound like somebody that has lost their faculty. It doesn't sound like somebody that has lost their agency. In fact, it's an exercise of his authority. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Philippians tells us what this is. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, it was not death that he was obeying but it was rather that he was obeying his father. He had already prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thy will. The father said, it's Calvary. And sent him towards the cross. And knowing it was the will of God, knowing that it was the plan of God, knowing it was the desire of the father, he willingly submitted himself unto the death of the cross. I would say this, and and I'm done. His submission teaches me something about dying to self. I want to give you what I hope will be the most fruitful truth that I give you tonight. Submission, dying to self, is not so much about dying to self as it is about living unto God. Let me give you another example of that. We hear a lot about separation. I'm a separatist. I believe that's biblical. I believe we should separate from ungodliness. I believe we should separate from worldliness. I believe we should separate from idolatry. I am a biblical separatist. And separatism, I'm not an isolationist, but I'm a separatist. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. I will be a father unto you. Separatism is a biblical doctrine and biblical truth. But if all you're ever focused on is what you're separating from and not what you're separating to, you're never going to be separated in your life. And in your life and mine, this matter of submission, of dying to self, yes, it's about dying to self, but not so simply that self will die, but rather that we might live unto God. Remember what we read at the beginning of this message in Romans chapter number 5. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You say, preacher, I'm living right now, and if I die, I'll quit living. No, you're dying right now. And if you'll die, you'll start living. Hey, listen, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. When you're living to self, that's not life. 
Rather, dying to self and living unto God, that's what life is. And submitting unto Him is not putting shackles on, it's taking shackles off. Submitting unto Him is not narrowing your experience of life, it's broadening and deepening your experience of life. And if I'm going to die to self, it's not going to be merely because I put an arrow through the heart of self and of will and of ambition and of lust but rather it's going to be because I choose to submit my life under the will and working and word of God. It's going to be not just because I choose to die, but because I choose to live. When I see his choice in this passage, you say, preacher, it was a choice to die. Yes, it was a choice to die. But remember what we quoted from Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before endured the cross, despising the shame. Don't you think for one moment that Christ thought the cross was the end? He saw past the cross to an empty tomb, to an exalted throne, to a blood-washed church. He saw beyond those things. He didn't die that death might win. He died that life might win out. And if I'm going to die to self, it's going to be not so that I might just live a dead life, but it's so that I might have a living life. I'm going to have to be willing to submit myself unto God if I'm going to die unto self. Let's bow together tonight. Musician can come and play. And I, you know, I I don't preach a lot of these seven-point sermons. When I do, here's what I'm going to say to you. If one of them hits you, won't you meet God in the altar? (laughs) We said a lot tonight. If, if God dealt with you about something, meet Him in this altar. If God said a word to you, meet Him in this altar and let Him have His will and His way tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. May Him and Him alone be glorified. We ask it in Christ's name.